I am forced to admit that even though I had traveled a long distance to place Bowen Tyler's manuscript in the hands of his father, I was still a trifle skeptical as to its sincerity, since I could not but recall that it had not been many years since Bowen had been one of the most notorious practical jokers of his alma mater. The truth was that as I sat in the Tyler Library at Santa Monica, I commenced to feel a trifle foolish, and to wish that I had merely forwarded the manuscript by express instead of bearing it personally, for I confess that I do not enjoy being laughed at. I have a well-developed sense of humor, when the joke is not on me. Mr. Tyler Sr. was expected almost hourly. The last steamer in from Honolulu had brought information of the date of the expected sailing of his yacht, Toreador, which was now twenty-four hours overdue. Mr. Tyler's assistant secretary, who had been left at home, assured me that there was no doubt but that the Toreador had sailed as promised, since he knew his employer well enough to be positive that nothing short of an act of God would prevent his doing what he had planned to do. I was also aware of the fact that the sending apparatus of the Toreador's wireless equipment was sealed, and that it would only be used in event of dire necessity. There was, therefore, nothing to do but wait, and we waited. We discussed the manuscript and hazarded guesses concerning it and the strange events it narrated. The torpedoing of the liner upon which Bowen J. Tyler, Jr. had taken passage for France to join the American ambulance was a well-known fact, and I had further substantiated by wire to the New York office of the owners that a Miss LaRue had been booked for passage. Further, Neither she nor Bowen had been mentioned among the list of survivors, nor had the body of either of them been recovered. Their rescue by the English tug was entirely probable. The capture of the enemy U-33 by the tug's crew was not beyond the range of possibility. And their adventures during the perilous cruise, which the treachery and deceit of Benson extended until they found themselves in the waters of the far south Pacific, with depleted stores and poisoned water casks, while bordering upon the fantastic, appeared logical enough as narrated event by event in the manuscript. Caprona has always been considered a more or less mythical land though it is vouched for by an eminent navigator of the 18th century. But Bowen's narrative made it seem very real, however many miles of trackless ocean lay between us and it. Yes, that narrative had us guessing. We were agreed that it was most improbable, but neither of us could say that anything which it contained was beyond the range of possibility. The weird flora and fauna of Caspak were as possible under the thick, warm, atmospheric conditions of the superheated crater as they were in the Mesozoic era, under almost exactly similar conditions, which were then probably worldwide. The assistant secretary had heard of Caproni and his discoveries, but admitted that he had never taken much stock in the one or the other.
We were agreed that the one statement most difficult of explanation was that which reported the entire absence of human young among the various tribes with which Tyler had had intercourse. This was the one irreconcilable statement of the manuscript. A world of adults. It was impossible. We speculated upon the probable fate of Bradley and his party of English sailors. Tyler had found the graves of two of them. How many more might have perished? And Miss LaRue. Could a young girl long have survived the horrors of Caspac after having been separated from all of her own kind? The assistant secretary wondered if Nobbs still was with her, and then we both smiled at this tacit acceptance of the truth of the whole uncanny tale.